0: Hello, I'm your host, Veronica Winters. This podcast is available on my YouTube channel at Veronica's Art. You can get it in the audio format on any podcast platform. If you enjoy this show, please rate it. Um, It helps a lot for others to discover this show. And don't forget to visit my website veronicasart.com to see new work get inspired or maybe you'd like to learn how to draw and paint Uh, you're welcome to take one of my online video classes so please visit veronicasart.com thanks so much for listening and watching please enjoy the show I am honored to have the founders of Natural Pigments as my guests today. George O'Hanlon and Tatiana Zaitsevar are going to share their amazing story, how they founded uh, Natural Pigments and what makes them different from other art supplies manufacturers. Based in Northern California, Natural Pigments manufactures and distributes rare and hard to find materials for fine artists and decorators. Uh, to my guests and the YouTube subscribers, I apologize for the quality of this video. It was a technical mistake. You still get lots of relevant information so you can create the best paintings possible. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh wow. <laughs> well yeah. I'm I'm very happy that you decided to participate in this podcast. Thank you so much for doing that.
1: Thank sure. you for invite.
2: Thank you.
0: So could you introduce yourself and tell me how you decided on the idea for the company, which is natural pigments.
2: Okay, I can start with that. Uh, we both started natural pigments in 2003, and um, the uh, it, uh, there's there's a big backstory to all of this, of course, and I won't bore everybody with the details, but suffice to say that I started off as an artist uh, in uh, in the 1970s. But like, but I I loved figurative art. I didn't like abstract art and. And at, figurative art wasn't very popular at the time.
3: Mm-hmm. So, uh,
2: and so the only type of art that anybody could do at the time was, was being an illustrator. I didn't fancy myself as an illustrator. So, but anyway, I was an illustrator for a while. And then, of course, through that, I uh, also became a chemist and um, through part of my career. But it wasn't until the 1990s that I took an interest, again, in painting, Uh, And um, and I went to Russia Mm -hmm. and uh, and and because I was very interested in uh, medieval Russian painting, particularly and uh, particularly, of course, uh, Russian iconography. And uh, we met or I met at the time I met Tatiana, but at the same time, I also met uh, a a geologist who uh, introduced me to mineral and natural pigments. And that uh, made a whole difference, not only in my perspective of painting. Uh, and, and of course we were do, I was learning egg tempera in Russia but, and fresco. But uh, apart from that, um, it was very important in oil painting. And that introduction uh, led me to want to introduce natural type pigments back into mainstream art. Uh, here back in the United States initially. And um, and I also, and the whole thing kind of just organically grew up. I, I didn't intend to make paint. I tended to paint with these things. But making the paint become so interesting, and because of my background in chemistry, I became even more interested in, in uh, all of this. Uh, we got married, and we started the company, And um, we started to uh, eventually we started making paint and and one thing led to another. And here we are today. So it's it's this, you know, it's just kind of uh, through a series of diversions uh, actually led to this whole thing.
1: Mm -hmm. The idea is, of course, is George's idea, because I. Nothing to do uh, to uh, with art before him. And uh, I am just like normal December's wife. And, uh, <laughs> of course, Americans will not understand yeah, no, what no it is. Yeah, understand that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> A very, uh, very educated uh, man um, were sent to Siberia where wives... Uh, were followed, sent you know. <laughs> with them and so wives actually educated Siberian population and uh, so I just I didn't speak in English and so for me it was I work uh, all my life since I was 16 and so for me it was would be weird to change the country and stop working so that was not uh, possible mm-hmm. so I thought First, of course, when we started Iconophile, that's what it was started before, uh, natural pigments, because Iconophile is a non-religion, but um, non-profit organization, we were teaching iconography first, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> so, uh, and that because it, here in this country, it was so little information about iconography, mm-hmm. although... Every Russian who slightly <coughs> knew what icons are, so they suddenly started to teach the, you know, icon classes here. And I always make a, a joke about uh, Americans are like sponges. They are, they're, they, they so want, they need that information, but it's, you can't take anywhere, just, or you, you can't just go and suddenly take a class you needed to find that information and so that's uh, with the kind of file it was much easier for me because i would find information in russian we will translate um in in russia uh the universities and um the connections what george was uh was working there before me and with me the first uh first what probably like 10 years and uh we did so they were helping us with translation, and um, so we we did several journals. Uh, we had whole website. We had tours uh, of uh, iconography, and then I slowly started uh, learn English. And then, <laughs> then the time when natural pigments come up. So then. At least I could communicate um half intelligently with george and um so that that's how it started, and of course again, it started as his hobby. We never ever thought then it will be commercial products or even company will grow out of this garage because in garage we you know it was fun, you know it was really fun because he he was just because um besides that of course he had another business what really support us as a family and um that business was another 13 years in our life and that um that helped us and uh so that, so, that business was in design i'm sorry yeah
0: uh did you meet in moscow was it in moscow
1: it was st petersburg st petersburg.
0: petersburg okay okay uh, then it makes even more sense <laughs> yeah
1: so for me uh St Petersburg is my city. I I I can't even say city it's my town. You know it's like <laughs> I I I, uh, I had my education there. I had my you know I I mean this is my life. That the although I'm from Lithuania Mm-hmm. but i i had my education there and you do know then every time when it's college in russia so then that's where you develop that relationships with whatever place you have whatever people and so that's why uh moscow i don't know much and i really it's it's really not not even i, I mean obviously it has an interest but uh, for me as a russian so for mm-hmm. me St. Petersburg is my my. Sister. And I love
2: Moscow. Yeah, because so it's, said... <laughs> it's thoroughly Russian, yeah. whereas Saint Petersburg is is more European. It's. Just,
0: um, I think it's uh, the culture is very different. It's more cultural.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 more uh, it's more cosmo- Saint Petersburg is more cosmopolitan. The architecture, of course, is is European.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, except for little enclaves of a very definite Russian uh architecture but moscow is definitely Mm -hmm. and and i love that i love that that so george
0: did you speak russian when you No. (laughs) No? how did you communicate
2: It's, uh, uh, I, I, we, I, we, drew originally, pictures. of course, originally, uh,
1: <laughs> when he came to, to Russia, so he had the interpreter, of course, we, we had uh, uh, the
2: interpreter so just for a few to, days though. Few,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, was, then uh, I had my vocabulary uh, of the vocabulary. So we, yeah, so we just, we used, dictionary. we used
2: a dictionary yes, and, and this, uh, so there was no google translation at the no, time no no that time and uh, and i drew pictures yeah and i had a little notebook and i was able to sketch out ideas and and it's it's amazing what you can communicate when you have willing parties you know <laughs> 22
1: years later we are looking back to that situation and uh, believe me we're talking about our meeting almost every week because every week we like Surprise! Like 22 years later, I was like, "Really? How did we do this?" <laughs> so, because now we we uh, speak same language, but uh, that time I we really we don't even we don't remember how it was, but we do remember then it was very easy. Easy. I I I, dev, I, I mean, remember it, it, there, struggle. So there, 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 I had struggle here yeah. when I came here. Yeah. I mm-hmm. did I did struggle very much. And it was more and, of a uh,
2: cultural change rather than yeah uh, rather than yeah. A language issue. Yeah. 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 But yeah yeah that's.
0: So in what university did you study the
1: iconography?
2: It's not uh, so he went I, I, to
1: universities I, and the studios. Yes, I,
2: I was working with artists directly. And what was interesting mm-hmm. is that many of the artists uh, that were painters, so I was working with these artists directly in Yaroslavl and uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. And what's interesting is that they, of course, all went to universities, they were educated in art. But mm-hmm. no education in, in iconography, obviously, because uh, because most of their education was in the Soviet Union.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So they were all self-taught in iconography, because there were very few iconographers, mm-hmm. let's say, prior to the 1990s. I mean,
1: we, we did have, of course, but, we have Grabar Institute, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Avtchinikov was our... I can't call him mentor because he was, you know, uh, he was very um, unusual person, and so we. <laughs> it took for us years to to understand uh, why he he was who he was, how he behaved, and so. But Grabar Institute was uh, very eye open for uh, our opening for us because, of course, you, you see, although we did work with universities, it was always. Um, they studied the um, theological part of the mm-hmm. and uh and the art separate from religion and um uh, of course, for people here you, they probably don't even understand how it is with seventy years we lived as as you know as a very religious uh nation we lived seventy years without um religion. proper yeah so but once, uh, of course, it was always in our house. As always, we had some grandmother who would for candy or for sugar will tell you to pray. And so and as a children, we all learned that. But uh, as uh, during the Perestroika, suddenly everything changed. So I remember going to church as an 18 years old uh um, Come all goal, <laughs> so that's uh, it's again. So uh, that was needed, and then where all suddenly where this all icons come from? They they really came from modern artists who switch, and it's not like they many of them didn't have that call. They just had the necessity to survive. Through the um, horrible time but we had the nineties in mm-hmm. uh, in Russia, and um, Veronica, I don't know when when did you move here?
0: I left uh, Russia at the end of the nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so- I I remember it very well.
1: Yeah. So for me, it's of course uh, I left Russia. Um, my parents moved to Lithuania when I was fourteen. So. And then, you know, very quickly, Lithuania and Latvia, and so Baltic countries become uh, their own countries, not republics anymore. But still, nineties were always—I mean, everywhere was horrible at that time—and so that's.
2: Uh, and it, it was actually amazing to me because uh, when I first went to Russia, I uh, I wrote to the universities in various locations and, uh, and museums and they opened themselves up completely. And I, you know, I wasn't, Nobody. I wasn't anybody known, no. yeah. but they were, I, I think they were just amazed that, uh, that American would be interested in medieval Russian art mm-hmm. t- with the interest mm-hmm. that I had. And, and, uh, um, and, and that was, uh, that was quite, it, it was it, very impressive for me that we were, uh, The relationships we developed with uh, universities in in Russia so quickly and and they were so open to us and very transparent. It was amazing. Uh, It was an amazing experience.
1: They were much nicer to him than to me. (laughs) Yes, I know. Uh, I
0: I think uh, Russians treat foreigners differently.
2: Yes. At least
0: in my experience. I don't know. Mm.
2: I'm, I'm, I'm and I'm certain that's that's correct, and, uh, but but it was such a great and warm introduction mm-hmm. uh, to Russia, and uh, it was very impressive. And I think actually, what's amazing is that a lot of foreigners who uh who go to Russia have that same experience because mm-hmm. I I know many others who have, and uh. Uh, and even though in, in in Russia it's it's uncommon to see people smile on the street, but but they are genuinely warm people, it, uh, and it that is that's very impressive. It's very yeah, impressive.
0: wonderful. It's a far
2: cry from what we're you know what we think of now, but. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think Russians are very hospitable people when you get to know them more personally. But yes, no one smiles on the street. If you smile, you you are considered being crazy. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, uh, I, I was surprised. I was surprised how everybody met him. And so when I remember like first time when we went through that, he had the it's not even tour because he organized just one stop after another from one university to another studio. And so to, um, I was surprised how they met and at that time i didn't speak english but everybody with whom he was meeting yeah obviously everybody they spoke, spoke english, spoke english okay. and they <clears throat> were so kind and nice to him and so and i thought like wow did i miss something suddenly i came from lithuania and suddenly i see that culture and i thought like wow i i think For the, you know, 20 years I lived in Lithuania, I suddenly lost that. And then that's why when we met it and we uh, first our tour to to Russia, it was a golden ring. Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: we brought our first 13 people to there. And it was an incredible tour. It was all this 13 people. You know, one one person already died, but uh, we still keep very tight connection. And um, because that was absolutely
2: all of Life changing. All of them, all of them all all said all it was us. a life changing experience. So what we did is we, as part of Iconifa, which was this nonprofit that uh, taught uh, mostly Americans, but also some Europeans and South Americans. <laughs> Uh, about um, uh, basically Eastern Christian art, Orthodox art. And, uh, but I can't call it all Orthodox because a lot of it predates uh, the, uh, the split between uh, the Western and Eastern churches. But um, what's interesting is that uh, we organized these tours and we focused on, on the development of this art. And it was so important to see the art in place in the places where it was born, and that changed people's concept of medieval and Eastern Christian art. It was actually the entire Eastern Mediterranean art. I, I can't even call it, you know, just Christian art. But um, uh, and it was it, it was uh, an incredible experience. We organized a number of tours in Russia, uh, Greece, Turkey, and Egypt, and these were. Christian art in Egypt. A lot of people don't think oh. about that.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: the uh but the phenomenon of Christian art in Egypt was tremendous. And uh and for Tanya that was of course a life-changing experience because that was one of her dreams to go to Egypt and that was my stipulation.
1: Of- <laughs> I said I will marry you if you will bring me to Egypt. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, guys! <laughs> but it was my my dream because I uh, I so many years as a as a teenager I was uh, studying and I was learning and I was like oh God that that was something and you remember if if you uh, I'm I kind of assuming then we are almost the same age and so we are sharing the same experience in Russia where you could not leave anywhere so you could not go it's now you know every Russian, almost every Russian can go to Turkey or Egypt without any problems, but it was not the case before. And, uh, and I remember when George, uh, promised me was like, well, no problem. I will take you to Egypt. I'm like, okay, I will marry you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So no, but that was surprise actually when he, uh, he gave, uh, he decided to have this tour and again, like many things in our life, um, i mean George's and uh, mine. so everything like every step we do we do kind of without not without thinking but first it's an impulse it's like th- that was the impulse to go back to russia uh and have the first tour it we didn't know where it will lead us but we just understood that we need to do that so that we we had that first <coughs> tour with our 13 people and I, I, I thought, oh my God, that was so, so great for me because I back, went back to, of course, to, to my homeland for George because we had this most incredible 16 days. And then, of course, then after six years of these tours, we had the, you know, every, every country, what, uh, possible uh, with uh, iconography but then we realized then it's not enough so we had the natural pigments uh, in 2003 and uh because i i have always joking about iconophile because it took all George's time and it was non-profit and i told him then i want to eat once in a while so, I want something for profit, so we created natural pigments. even that I didn't see then where it will lead. George has this this incredible ideas every time, and i I always call him my balloon, and I'm his stone <laughs> him because he always has this most craziest ideas and then he actually made them happen and that's that's how you know our our life is always on the run
2: no and iconophile actually set the stage for natural pigments because iconophile was <clears throat> was really about education yeah um and we were educating people about art and art practices and so and Because of that, we had to provide natural, natural pigments. And the first natural pigments we brought uh, from our contact in Russia, uh, the geologist, um, who is a great friend of ours. He passed away uh, not so long ago, but a great friend of ours. And he sourced these important minerals. These were ancient minerals that were used in painting for for Thousands of years. And uh, so he sourced them. And, and I remember we took them. And if you can imagine, this was uh, actually uh, post 2000, post 9 yeah, post yeah, We were taking bags of powder
1: in our luggage
2: through <laughs> through Sheremetyev uh, airport in Moscow.
1: Wow. Like,
2: <laughs> in kilos of different powders. Uh, In our in our luggage and uh, to bring them to back in the United States, because uh, in order to uh, in order to teach people really the the uh, how to paint, they needed the actual materials because the 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 process was so important out of. and, And that's why natural that's why natural pigments actually evolved, because we needed to have an outlet to sell. The, the product uh, the pigments and so for years we were actually just selling pigments hence the name and and then it wasn't until about 2007 that that I found the the biggest moment in in natural pigments history was when I discovered that these pigments behaved differently in oil than modern oil paint. That was amazing mm-hmm. and because of that, I, 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 th- I thought, gee, you know, artists need to understand this. Their paint can actually do things they never thought it could do. And also led me to the, to the belief that the old master's paints, which is now correct, behaved very differently from modern. And, and it allowed artists to explore different techniques and, and methodology in their painting. So, uh, so we started making paint that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, is with it, these is pigments. it right
1: to say then basically not um, not many even <clears throat> uh, scientists figure out? I know you found a couple yeah. uh, papers about the particle size, but nobody before George were talking about this. And Actually it, uh-huh?
0: Actually, it was my next question. If you could like talk about your Rubloff oil paints and how they're different from other brands.
2: Sure. Yeah. So part of this was in, in this discovery was the way that these pigments were behaving very differently. These were, and it wasn't because they were necessarily natural pigments. Uh, It was the fact that how you make natural pigments results in a heterogeneous particle size and shape. And, and I, I, um, and I understood that, uh, initially. And when I, but I, what I didn't understand is when you, when you add that into oil paint, the mm-hmm. paint then behaves differently. And it behaves differently based on the pigments rather than the, o- necessarily the oil. All the oil has some effect on that. Uh, and as a result, the, um, uh, this influenced the rheology. The rheology is the behavior of a what they call a non-Newtonian substance, which is a a substance that is not necessarily a fluid, but it's also not a solid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paint is an example. And there's many, many examples of what are non-Newtonian fluids. uh, But paint is just one example of that. Um, So the the, the, the really important thing was this difference in behavior. uh, And what I, thought was so great was that I I could share this with artists. And I looked up papers about this in, in uh, scientific journals and there, I only found two small references in, in conservation science papers, uh, one in the national uh, national gallery technical bulletin. And the, it only discussed it just as an aside. So, and, and there's good reason why it's because when conservation scientists are looking at old paintings, they don't think about what the paint behaved or how it behaved while the artist was using it. They're thinking about the composition of the paint today mm-hmm. because that's what, that's what they have. And, mm-hmm. and how do they intervene with the degradation forces that are going on in the painting? So uh, I thought, OK, I, I could make paint like that. And we started making paint. I, I bought a mill and we started making paint. And uh, and the first thing I did is I did what most modern paint manufacturers would do. I put a pigment stabilizer in the paint Mm
3: -hmm.
2: that changed everything. The paint stopped behaving how it was when it was just the pigment and oil. And so I thought, well, that's what do I do now? I can't make paint in the modern sense, how Mm -hmm. Modern paint manufacturers, and would you make need it.
1: to um, to explain what it is. Yeah. The stabilizer. So the
2: stabilizer would be, and and today all other brands use a pigment or uh, or stabilizer. It is um uh, is an anti settling agent uh, such as aluminum stearate or magnesium stearate. Um. So it's it's any one of those things. And and some use castor wax or even beeswax as a stabilizer. And so um, and when they put that in there, it, it helps to store the paint for long periods of time because it prevents to mm-hmm. a large degree, not entirely, the paint from separating the pigment and oil from separating. Uh, so. Uh, When we so when we made paint, we found that the paint started separating quite rapidly. We couldn't store it in tubes for very long. So um, so I then packed uh, packed up the family, took them to England because there I understood in England they were making paint in the 19th century, but they didn't have the modern stabilizers that came into existence in the 20th century. So, uh, so I studied what was going on in mod- in manufacturing of artist paints in, in England in, during the 19th century. And I found some differences and we came back and we introduced those differences into our process. I should mention. And it mention, changed, it changed, yeah, uh, I, how, how things worked. I should mention because, uh,
1: George actually connected Windsor and Newton. And, <clears> um, usually, uh companies don't invite um the um competitors competitors we were of course we were not competitors for uh, at all for that
0: at that, that time.
1: time yeah the, uh yes yes da. <laughs> so what happened but they understood what he was looking for and that time still at that time were great chemists working for Windsor and Newton, and Windsor and Newton still was Windsor and Newton, and it was I think last year of that great company what fell apart afterwards. But they did take us to their laborator- laboratories, and they show us everything what they could, including that machine what was making the mother uh, mother lake
2: they took us to the matter lake production which was which, fabulous
1: and so which People uh, probably on 21st, end of the 21st century will think that that was some kind of mystery, so it was not exist. We did see that. It did exist, and it was made up to that year. They still were making uh, Matter Lake, <coughs> that, that uh, machine. They were,
2: they were making Matter Lake the way they made it in the early part of the 19th century. And apparently, they were using the same equipment. Uh, that uh, George Field developed. George Field was a, um, was basically a dyer and color maker in the early part uh, uh, in England in the 19th century. And um, uh, they then took his process and continued that process. It was phenomenal. Uh, So, So Winsor &
1: Newton had that uh, beautiful color. It's rose matter. mm -hmm. And um, and so up to 2007 it still was uh, probably they they what we understood they made enough pigment for next couple of years and so if all the um, artists uh, had the mother r- rose matter that was was the the original color and now of course it's mixture of the pigments pretending like mother lake that's what happening actually that's what happening in the industry right now so we companies so yeah. uh,
0: are you saying that uh you know contemporary paints don't last very long they fade is that the the, the problem with the paint we have all
2: not come to not, that. Necessi- not necessarily. <laughs> um, so there, there's two parts to that. Obviously, like,
0: how is it different? That's what I'm trying to well, understand.
2: So in terms of Rublev paints, uh, Rublev color paints, they are different because the fact that we do several things. One is we're we're using. If you look at our line of paints, I would say 80% of the line is composed of natural pigments Mm -hmm. so we have a and and although other paint lines may have natural pigments in their line Mm -hmm. it's a smaller proportion of the line we have a greater variety so Mm -hmm. just to give you an example most paint lines have one raw umber we have nine raw umbers
1: but when you look again on the back of the tube of that raw umber most companies have Synthetic pigments mm-hmm. as a raw umber. right. So
2: even the names now, let's say an ochre or a sienna or an umber, which is always for, for centuries, for centuries has always been associated with a natural pigment is now no longer a natural pigment. It is a synthetic pigment or a mixture of synthetic pigments.
0: Well, it makes sense because it cheapens uh, the cost of the paint.
2: Not it, necessarily. It, it's not, not always. always done that for it's that in reason. Some cases, in some yes. cases it is, but but not always. Uh, what probably the biggest reason is, uh, is that it's more consistent than natural pigments. You see, if you're digging out of the ground, you can't expect nature to produce exactly the same color <sighs> mm-hmm.
3: throughout
2: that area so there will be a little bit of a shift we call it a color wobble we get this little bit of shift in the color from batch to batch and it's because of you know where where that pigment originated now uh for for a large company producing massive amounts of paint much bigger than us let's say like windsor newton by the way windsor newton no longer is making paint in in england all of their paint is made in Le Mans, France, where they also make Sennelier, mm-hmm. uh, bourgeois and so forth. It's all it's it's all under one massive company called, called Colart. So uh, there, if you've got you know you've got a quality control lab and you're seeing the shift, you know, it it becomes a management uh pro. Uh, a product assurance or product quality control problem. But we
1: should, again, mention why is that? Because, see, before old masters were making for themselves, and even later, let's say, you know, a little bit later, Mm -hmm. even if they didn't make for themselves, so they had apprentices making. But now, and it was an artist, you know, now every um, person who paints twice a year call themselves artists mm-hmm. and where are they going and buying their colors? They're going to stores. They never, they don't the most, that kind of artists, they don't even understand what's the pigment mm-hmm. and how the paint is made and how, uh, of course you can't expect even them to uh, understand the behavior, but, for people who sell the colors for them, if imagine the company sell two tubes of uh, so one once they sell one color and half year later they sell another color, and then of course that kind of artist will freak out and say like Jesus, this is different color. I know I bought exactly the same tube, but this is the, so. That's where we we need to say right. why. So
2: you know you are
1: companies are. So
0: what's the advantage of using natural pigments? Like, what's the main advantage of using natural pigments in paint as opposed to
3: synthetic?
2: I I can't say there's an advantage necessarily, but that really shouldn't be what artists are always interested in. Artists are interested in having as many, as well as anybody in the field, having as many tools at mm-hmm. your disposal as possible why would you limit yourself to a set of colors that behave in one manner when mm-hmm. have colors that have a wide range of subtlety a wide range of behavior where it flows under the brush differently mm-hmm. where it it can be extended differently where it, uh, it will react to the per- personality, the nervous system of the artist rather than the artist always having to, and, and actually this is a kind of a problem with modern artists is that, and, and why artists use so many mediums is because they have basically a small set of tools that they now have to change or mitigate to match their technique and style, mm-hmm. and artist is going to have a very different technique and style. So why? In, why? In fact,
1: l- the medium, the word as a medium, came together with the modern um, paint. Well, the idea, the idea the, of a, the yeah.
2: idea of a medium, because artists didn't have mediums per se when you go back into, let's say, the 16th or the 17th centuries. Uh, because they made their paints so they mm-hmm. can make the paint do exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to buy, uh, something off the store shelf that was pre designed for one idea. You see, the paint maker has his or her own idea what that paint should do, behave, mm-hmm. look like. But the artist in, in, uh, let's say in the 17th or 16th century, They made the paint exactly how they wanted it. So Mm -hmm. imagine, you know, we we tend to think that our modern consumer world offers us so many options. And in a way, it does. But the options are still limited choices. When you make things your own, you have an unlimited range of choices. Mm -hmm. So, so what really what Rublev does is offer artists an alternative to their palette today. It's not that it's a superior palette. It is a different palette and it has a different behavior. It's always noticeable. Every artist that uses a Rublev color immediately, re- and except for perhaps a hobbyist who doesn't understand paint itself, but any, any professional, clearly when they start using a Rublev color, they see the difference. Now, do some, and some absolutely love that, and some don't, and that's perfectly fine, because mm-hmm. it, it's it's not possible to make something that pleases everybody on I the planet. I always
1: <laughs> say, don't judge us for uh, by one tube, uh, because every color, absolutely every color on our uh, on our palette behaves completely different. That's why we have six yellow ochres. So then you as an artist can, you know, you can buy lemon ochre uh, whereas the bigger particles were very transparent yellow ochre where uh, and it will behave long and stringy (coughs) where the blue ridge yellow ochre will be much more powerful. The particles are so small and so and it's so every artist actually can find something what works specifically for him. That's why it is difficult life for us, but we choose that because it was fun for him again it was if it's it a changed, challenge if we <laughs> would from the beginning we'll think about like let's make a money, let's make a profit with but that was the hobby that was never even thinking like okay let's that's why the we have five redhawkers, and again most of them absolutely nutty colors. They (laughs) misbehave. And so it's like one artist uh, said, and it's like children, you know, we have, you know, range of children, (laughs) five or six of them. Yes. And so you love, uh, absolutely love them, but you hate some of their, you know, characters and same as our colors. We, we always saying that. And, uh, the treatment, how we make our colors, are they are completely different than uh, because we, we, in order to, for them behave. So we um, store them, we age them until they they will behave <clears throat> how at least we want. But it doesn't mean that like no. I see.
2: yeah. You know, a good illustration of this is I I, I just saw a uh, a comment from one of our artists, and by the way, because. What the other unusual thing about what natural pigments did is we started off as an as an a, not only a manufacturer but an e-commerce company. So we have direct contact now a lot of companies don't there are a few of them that that start our small boutique uh, uh, art materials manufacturers, but a lot of companies don't have this direct communication with all of their customers. we do. Mm-hmm. And so we get all kinds of feedback. And I just got a feedback from one customer who uh, bought, uh, we, have, we make two lead whites, one of them, the lead white number two, which is ground in linseed, uh, excuse me, walnut oil. Uh, it is very stringy. And, and, uh, and this artist was complaining that every time they picked up the, the paint, the little string followed off of it. And, and they complained that the little strings were going all over their palette you know exactly what that is and <gasps> the amazing thing about it is that is why some wild. artists absolutely love that that's why because that, it, yeah. it it gives them a different world in which they can create imagine creating a
0: texture
2: line or texture mm-hmm. yeah and but that's not for everybody so mm-hmm. obviously you know this artist absolutely couldn't understand how to work with that. But that's why we have another lead white, which doesn't do that. And so see, that's the subtlety. Now that that's lost on an amateur. I obviously, and, um, and if you look at the, the major art materials companies, they're producing largely for amateurs. That's who their market is. That's not our market. We, we produce entirely for professionals because they understand what we're doing. and, this iconophile, the fact that we are doing all this education, this actually carried over into natural pigments. We do more education. Um, I, I mean, it's it's just
1: that's why it, it's just an
2: amazing amount. If you look at our website, I've written uh, over yes,
0: yes, yeah, so you have a, an amazing uh, blog. Yeah, yeah, amazing at, blog at,
2: collection. At yeah. We, we produce uh, now. We're producing uh, uh, YouTube videos on all these aspects of. But art. I can
1: tell you again how it started. It was so, again, from out of nowhere because uh, we were interested in uh, in pigments. George started writing articles and about pigments, and so 2006 or seven uh 2007 national gallery invited him for first his lecture in national national gallery for the pigments and we thought who is interested in pigments so restorers we expected maybe 30 people to come to that lecture and so national gallery gave us the smallest room what they had there and then for our surprise we had 300 some people People were sitting on stairs, you know, on the stage, listening to him. And we were like, wow, that's strange. So imagine, so then suddenly he started to have these lectures, uh, one after another. So seven lectures la- later, we understand that people started complaining to us, like, okay, you are giving on big stages, but we are in here in small, you know, towns. We don't even know what, where to take that information. That's how we started our um, uh, painting best practices. That was the, the first our class, which was two days. He puts all that information from all his lectures together to that first uh, class. And then we started travel with this class. And then we realized artists don't know anything about it. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Nothing.
1: It's- Zero. It doesn't matter on what country you are or mm-hmm. how long you painting. If it's three years of you on school or 40 years of you teaching. And so artists just realized that they have tube of the paint and mediums from their teachers, you know, and that's, that's it. And uh, and then they started call George because everything fell apart. So tell
0: me uh, um a lot of artists do acrylic underpainting before applying like oil paint over it. Is it okay or it's a horrible idea of doing that?
2: You mean an underpainting in
0: in in, a, in acrylic paint in, and, and then going over with oil paint.
2: In 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 theory it should be okay. Um uh, okay mainly because we uh, you know, what people don't understand is that uh, they they're they're always confused. We know that water and oil don't mix mm-hmm. and uh but a lot of people don't understand that acrylics don't actually dissolve in water. They're okay. suspended. It's it's a it's a suspension in water.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But once it's dried, acrylics have actually greater affinity for oils than they do for water, the 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 problem is is that in order to make acrylics um, dispersible in water, they have to add ingredients that then make the acrylic susceptible to water, which is a problem. But that's that's a separate issue. Uh, acrylics have their own issues. Oil paints have issues, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's possible to paint over an acrylic. Uh, and And what uh, we know
1: today well we
2: know today now we we may learn that there are some issues later uh that's a possibility. We recently learned that oil paint will not work on a acrylic medium so uh, now, now I'm talking about acrylic paint but mm-hmm. just simply a medium mm-hmm. so if you put a medium let's say for instance you apply a clear medium onto and this and this has actually been done. Some artists have put a clear medium onto an, a, a canvas or a piece of wood because they want the color of the canvas or the wood to come through on the painting. And then they apply oils over that. That is problematic because uh, we now found or at least golden uh, discovered uh, golden artist colors discovered recently that uh, oil paints will begin to craze or crackle. Uh, in very short period of time over a pure medium that is a medium without any pigments, but that's different from acrylic paint or acrylic grounds or what they so-called acrylic gessos, because Mm -hmm. those have pigments in them. And, uh, and we now we know, or we believe we know that oil paint will adhere well to that.
0: Okay. So yeah. <laughs> that part is okay. So how yeah. do I do I know if um if a dress is of high quality? Like whenever you look at them they all seem to be the same. Um the only difference is the name, the brand name. Right. So how
2: that's how that's a very know? good that's a very good question. Um in uh, in about 2012 Tatiana and I participated in a round robin study. Uh, I think it was around that time, uh, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, it was a round robin study that was being um, sponsored by the American Society of Testing Materials. And they were developing at the time uh, a standard for acrylic grounds. The, the This particular standard, uh, and it was a standard to test acrylic grounds for its uh, various properties, like uh, we'll paint adhere to it well. Does it have a sufficient flexibility to Mm -hmm. be applied to a canvas? Uh, Does it prevent um, uh, what they call support-induced discoloration Mm -hmm. and so forth, which is an anathema for acrylic paints on uh, natural-type supports? And so uh, what we found was very surprising. uh, Now, this round-robin was also a blind test. In other words, we were given canvases that were prepared with different grounds we didn't know companies we didn't know which brands they were they Mm -hmm. were different grounds and our job was to apply acrylic paints and oil paints to these canvases and
1: gel mediums
2: and gel mediums and then test them Mm -hmm. and what we found was surprising even to us because we found that some of the grounds acrylic paint would actually just peel right off of it
0: Oh, my
2: God. Now, what was interesting was that in almost all the cases, the oil paint adhered fairly well. Uh, But the acrylic paint was actually lifting off some of these canvases. So uh, what this tells us is that it does matter Mm -hmm. the quality of the acrylic ground. It matters a big deal. And so you want to be sure and buy acrylic grounds from companies that are very reputable, that have done, an, you know, testing of their own products. And I'm not just talking about quality control testing, I'm talking about really performance testing. And there's a few of them out there like that. Golden Artist Colors is mm-hmm. one. Uh, and would definitely would the, be a good candidate. But, overall, but you know, but you also see overall, artists that are...
1: Overall price matter. Yeah,
2: you see artists and they're as like a badge of honor, they're going out and saying, I bought this five gallon
0: yeah, yeah.
2: of, the, of acrylic ground terrible. for twenty dollars and they got a good deal. Yeah. But in reality, did they?
3: Mm-hmm. You know
2: and and what they're doing is they're, you know, what we the expression in English is uh, uh, um you know penny uh
1: what is that <laughs>
2: I'm gonna do a George Safe. Bush thing now.
1: <laughs> Save whatever that is.
2: Penny pennywise pound foolish In other words, they're they're saving money, but in reality what they're doing is they're wasting the potential waste of their time and labor. Which so many artists is amazing to me that so many artists are willing to sacrifice their mm-hmm. time just to save a little bit of money on the cost of their materials, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is penny wise pound foolish, it, it's it's an incredibly short sighted way of doing art. Overall,
1: Veronica, what we because uh, we, you know, we <coughs> are participating. Uh, how many years already with ASTM, and so we hear this firsthand. So artists need to understand then everything in our life is getting more expensive, everything. I mean, materials, what we... Uh, the COVID kicked us so bad. And uh, what's happening right now, it's even worse because everything, as a ma- the raw material we buy, buying, it's not even 100%. Usually it's 150 and 200% more. Oh but we can't... I mean... We small company, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we we understand where we can wobble. But when we talk about big companies and when you suddenly buy the from big company, very cheap uh, materials, you need to understand then something, somebody cut the corners Mm -hmm. and uh, it is okay if you are painting twice a year. But if that is your career, and by the way, traveling with painting best practices all over the world, literally from all over the world, we now understand that an artists being sued by galleries, by museums, by private customers, because the practice, what was before, oh, you know what, I will paint it, and as long as it was sold, it's not my problem. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work anymore. So artists need to understand that they are liable to their customers.
3: Mm-hmm. Same
1: yeah. what we, uh, we're saying. We as a company, we are liable to you because if you buy from rublev we stand by our name and, you know, whatever problems could occur, you can call us and we can figure out. So far, so far, but we are dealing with everybody's health problem. That Every- right? That's a Russian Yes, it's So everybody calling about everybody's health problem, but they're calling him. You know, this mm-hmm. is, this is the, it's becoming, and he is now advocating to all, com, uh, all other companies on the world because he does explain artists. So in many cases, it's not even actually about the materials, but how artists abuse the materials. So that's what's happening. And nobody is teaching if it's oil paint, it can't behave as the watercolors, but that's what now nowadays everybody is trying to make the oil colors thin. It physically, chemically, it can't be so. But if you jeopardize that, you need to understand what it will be on the end. And so that's why on painting best practices we are like you know we explain artists what they can what they cannot do with certain mediums and so we tra- and we talk about everything acry- acryl- acryl- in- T-
0: tell me about the white paint there are several kinds of white paint so mm-hmm. what's the most archival um, white paint that artists can use
2: so in in um, when you're talking about oil paint white uh, mm-hmm. is still right. the best white and and the reason is because, and this is, it's been known that for some time that lead white. Uh, was toxic. Well, it's toxic, of course. And, mm-hmm. and that's been well known for a long period of time. But what's, what has also been known is that the lead reacts to the oil and, and the reaction is to make very strong, flexible films. Mm-hmm. We didn't understand, however, until the last, I would say, uh thirty years, we didn't understand why that was, but the understanding mm-hmm. now is much greater uh Are there problems with with lead white in oil? Of course, but there's problems with everything that's uh, mm-hmm. not you know everything doesn't doesn't behave perfectly uh, but we get the best performance with lead white. titanium white in oil does not make it's a it's a useful white uh, mm-hmm. of course. But it doesn't make strong paint films. In fact, um one several studies indicate that the paint films made in oil with titanium white be, are very weak and oh uh, and somewhat brittle. so mm-hmm. uh, and and they age rapidly so that they don't form good paint films. So lead white, and in fact, lead white is the only color that makes really good paint films in oil paint. Now, of course, if you're talking about acrylics, uh, it doesn't make any sense to use lead white. Mm-hmm. Uh, titanium white. Tempera
1: doesn't uh, make. It doesn't
2: really make a lot of sense to use uh, lead white and tempera, certainly not in, in gouache and other types of techniques. There, the, and, the, you know, we, we promote the use of lead white, and it's not, you know, not because we, we're trying to, in, as, as, as one, one uh, person accused me of handing plutonium to children, <coughs> Oh my God! Um, yes, that was uh, that was an actual <laughs> accusation. Uh, <laughs> I won't listen.
1: To the podcast? <laughs> or maybe she will. Really maybe good. Yeah. Maybe.
2: <laughs> but in reality, we're not advocating use of toxic materials, except that they have a benefit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, in, if you look at industry overall, there's always things that have a benefit. That outweigh the potential toxic, and there's ways to safeguard yourself, and and uh, all of this information about artists dying from lead poisoning is totally inaccurate.
0: So it's an inac- oh okay because it was one of I mean, my questions.
2: Listen, right in terms of lead poisoning from their paint now, uh-huh. uh, and in fact, it's very it's very rare that someone dies directly from lead poisoning. They could die from complications uh, that are exacerbated by lead poisoning. When
1: they drink water from You know, the whole
2: but box. there's, you know, and, you know, like you'll read, uh, like there was a, a story in The Guardian, you know, this bastion of, of truth, <laughs> um, that talked about uh, Caravaggio dying from his paint. Well, that was a total fabrication. Oh, no. And it was designed to sell headlines. Mm hmm. Uh, obviously, because if you look at the story itself, we really don't know how Caravaggio died because we really don't have his body mm-hmm. in the first place. Now, of course, there's a little town in Italy where they for sure think they have Caravaggio's body because, of course, it gives them a badge of honor. But in in, in truth, we don't really know. So we don't know how he died. Most likely, know. he Let's probably... Talk about right. But lead lead can be used safely if you just simply avoid ingesting it, okay, uh, or okay. or if you're working with the powder, breathing the powder. It's it's that simple. It it it's not this radioactive substance. Uh, there are no fumes. That's been long proven. There's no uh, toxic fumes from lead white you know, when you use it normally as in oil paint. So. It's really uh, it's it's an overblown concern, but
1: same time, but it is yeah.
2: obviously it is it is concern. But an artist should always protect themselves in you know from the materials they're using, regardless of whether they know it's toxic or not, because we really don't know all of the toxicity of all the materials we use today. And in mm-hmm. fact, there's probably an equal amount of toxic materials underneath your kitchen sink or in your mm-hmm. cleaning pantry. I mean, it's amazing. Cleaning
0: supplies.
2: Right. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's just we just have to be more aware and protect ourselves. And and just that's why we advocate all this education. We, we always talk to artists about safety in the studio and probably the biggest concern for artists is the use of solvents. There, they should be far more concerned than actually lead white.
1: Can I just go back mm-hmm. a little bit? Obviously, if you do <clears throat> have children, and children are notorious eating everything around and leaking everything around. So we hope <clears throat> as an artist you don't leak your brushes although we do we do have artists who usually it's in tempera or watercolors but in oils not not the case but if you do have a children and you paint with uh, with lead so keep as uh, far away
2: because that's keep it under lock
1: but yeah. that's yeah. where the danger comes because this is not for uh, <clears throat> in most adults uh, and especially after a so- certain age it just passing through um if it's uh, it came as a paint, let's say not as a pigment when you breathe it, but for children it's different story, and so then uh, of course absolutely not. And uh, but same time be educated person. So it's it's amazing for us. We we meet artists. So then uh, you know any any profession you take, people go to schools learning how to you know to be safe. And the artists don't know anything about safety. That's why in in uh, we actually, that's what George just mentioned about the, the solvents. We tell you that the most danger, actually, not even the pigments like cadmiums and lead, because mm-hmm. cadmiums, let's talk about that too. So you do need to have uh, gloves anyway. But the most danger... Come with turpentine, and I mean the solvents
2: or odorless, odorless minerals, any solvent. Yes, actually.
1: and so and we don't have a one <laughs> week in here in uh, in uh, Rubly of Colors where artists call us and they they tell us horrible stories how they struggle with uh, with solvents, and so that that's real danger. So, what's the safest
0: solvent? Is it by is it Gamzol or no there is
2: no safe solvent
0: no say like no
2: thing they're all let's
1: uh forgive us so uh, we are good good friends with him but that's this is was good good um
2: because
0: it's important not to inhale it right
2: right but you see the way most artists are taught you know what what they believe to be adequate ventilation is opening a window in their studio Mm -hmm. which is not Mm -hmm. adequate ventilation uh, and that's why we advocate eliminating solvents from uh, from oil painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's possible. You can you certainly don't need to use solvents to clean brushes. I
0: mm-hmm. uh, And, yeah. and yeah.
2: you actually yeah, you can just use you can use mm-hmm. oil.
3: Uh, mm-hmm.
2: there's, a, there's an old chemist adage that says like dissolves like so <laughs> oil will dissolve oil paint. It will it will uh, help you clean it. And so and then just with soap and water, you remove the oil. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's one way. And then, of course, uh, painting without salt oil, painting without solvents is completely possible. And you don't have to resort to these water miscible oil paints, Mm -hmm. uh, which are are essentially compromised oil paints, because in order to make them water miscible, they put an additive in there. Uh, and they and they restructure the chemistry of the oil so that it's friendly to water it becomes uh becomes uh hydrophilic and as that's of course the biggest enemy of of painting is water water destroys paint eventually it destroys everything actually mm-hmm. it's 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 we need it for a living but it eventually breaks down everything that we know so um so that's that's an important point. I, I would like to go back to one point you know we didn't cover, which is you you asked about um, the permanency or the light fastness of colors mm-hmm. do natural pigments uh, as opposed to synthetic. The issue really isn't whether it's natural or synthetic. The issue really is more about whether it's organic or inorganic, uh, and recently, uh, a number of companies. Have discovered, and we're, we're participating in these studies as well, as part of the American Society of Testing Materials, that the rating system on the tubes of paint that we use today, which comes from the American Society of Testing Materials, uh, is giving false positives. In other words, uh-huh. what we believed to be light fast may not actually be light fast. And so there is an urgency to develop a new test. And unfortunately, most of the manufacturers of paint today are not willing to participate in yeah. industry-wide standard or test method. Uh, however, just recently, we're happy to announce that Windsor & Newton has agreed to participate in the study. We are participating in the study, Natural Pigments, as well as Golden Artist Colors, only three mm-hmm. companies. Uh, that's at least enough.
0: Well, that speaks volumes. <laughs>
2: yeah. But, you know, uh, it would be good if we get more to participate. And they should, because it's their industry. It's not just ours.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
2: their industry also. And it's the artists that either benefit or do not benefit by the results of these because now we don't really know which, and it's primarily the organic pigments, are actually lightfast and which ones are not. So, and it has, again, it has really little to do with the fact that they're modern or they're all ancient pigments or whether they're, uh, uh, you know, synthetic or natural. It has to do with the pigment chemistry. So that's, that's uh, an important point. We've been <laughs> preaching that, uh, by the way. For a number of years, with artists and even with the manufacturers, but we—it uh, seems to fall on deaf ears for the most part.
1: So that's why we are—we uh, are lucky because by the from the beginning we just choose to not work with organic pigments <clears throat> because again, as a of colors, we choose to have original idea was the pigments what were uh, were invented before 1850. Because right after that, the revolution of this, you know, one of the after another, all this uh, beautiful organic and inorganic pigments started to uh, pop up. And so we thought, everybody else doing these colors, why to bother? And of course, later we a little bit switched uh, the idea because artists now wanted us to make even modern colors but way how we make without any additives so we do have cadmiums let's say so because this is already 19th century uh, colors and so but in most cases so we have only two uh, two, two
2: organic,
1: organic pigments, organic pigments yeah. so we have carmine and uh, uh, prussian blue and that's it.
2: Most companies. But most
1: companies, when you look on the back of the tubes, you will at figure
2: least, out. At least 50% of their line are organic pigments.
1: And so it's a big we're concern.
2: T- what we're talking about are the phthalos, the quinacronones, the hansas,
1: hansas, The
2: benzodemazolones, the, the They're ma- strong, colors.
0: strong colors. They're all very strong tinting colors. colors. They're, but beautiful, they are, they're beautiful
2: colors, obviously. But they are
0: most questionable. But
2: now. we don't really know if they are light fast or not.
0: I see. I'd like to ask you about the mediums for oil painting. Uh, which one is the best? Is the best medium in terms of archival qualities?
2: The best medium for oil painting is oil. no
0: medium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and thought it was like no medium. <laughs>
2: no medium, really. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, and you know, even though like our we make lots of different mediums, we make a wide array of mediums but we always tell artists don't use them unless they fulfill a certain task Mm -hmm. the problem with today is like tanya mentioned already is that you know a, a teacher will have students and the teacher found in their work that a particular medium suits their style and their technique so obviously they teach that style and technique and along with it they teach the medium, but they don't explain to the students why use the medium. That's a problem because then the students think that the only way they can paint is with that medium. And that's not correct. And in fact, the best way to paint is without any medium, just using paint. Uh, but
1: that's why we have but, different behavior of the paint right. every tube so then at least people will use least amount of medium right. if they do need.
2: But the but the okay. mediums can be effective in terms of extending their ability to achieve a certain visual effect and that's the only reason to use a medium is when you need it to achieve let's say a texture a particular type of brush stroke Or a blending of two, you know, two paint, uh, paint passages. That's important.
1: So the safest, what we do have an our line. Of course, it's um, like in pasta medium or Velasquez medium. But again, always we when people <laughs> call us, we ask you first when when the question comes, what medium should I use? We will ask you a question, what do you want to achieve, and then we will suggest for you. We're like doctors, you know. You come
0: <laughs> to us. So l- l- let's say if I want to paint um, very thick texture. Mm-hmm. like Rembrandt did. Mm-hmm. What kind of medium should I use?
2: So we recommend like a paste medium. And what we mean by that is a medium that actually has a pigment in it. But the pigment is uh, has no basic color. I mean, it it kind of gives the medium a whitish color. But when you mix it in with your colors, it disappears completely. In other words, it mm-hmm. it. Even though it looks white, it doesn't behave like a white color. So it doesn't uh, it doesn't tint the color. Mm-hmm. It just gives it bulk, and it's actually the same strategy that a lot of paint uh, paint makers use when they want to make a student grade paint. So in order to use less pigment, and pigment is the biggest cost in paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, they simply add an extender pigment that has no effect or very little effect on the color, and so um, and so what they're doing is they're just simply bulking the paint up and using less of the colorant, which which of course drives the most expensive part of the paint. That's what Rembrandt did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Velasquez did. Mm-hmm. They they would add chalk into their paint. Okay. And uh, or silica, and they would extend the paint so that they could bulk it up, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's a very effective use uh, to create an impasto effect. That's how Rembrandt and Velasquez created any kind of impasto in their effects.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. <laughs> that's very interesting. <laughs> I'm gonna try it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about um, the gilding supplies. You have a whole section on on your website selling the supplies. Could you share, um, could you describe the basic process of gilding uh, a canvas or a panel? I'm assuming gilding on panel is a lot better, but could you share the process um, with the mentioning the supplies that you sell so sure. it makes more sense to sure.
2: So basically uh gilding involves a very thin leaf of metal and it could be gold it could be silver it could be aluminum copper uh bronze or it could be a, a composite of these metals uh and then what you're all what you're basically doing is adhering the leaf mm-hmm. onto the substrate but in that process, and what most maybe not most guilders, but guilders who are trying to achieve what we what they call bright gold or highly polished gold, something that like, for instance, you may see on an icon as an example. Mm-hmm. It's very brilliant, looks like yeah. a highly or metallic surface. It gives the the uh, illusion that it's made of metal. Uh, and so in order to achieve that, that means you really need to have a very smooth surface because one thing gold does and gold very well and the other leaf to, to a lesser degree, uh, it will it will show up any imperfection in the base. So you have to have so and that's where the preparation of the base is so important. You have to have a very smooth surface. So you have to get this highly polished surface and mm-hmm. then you apply the the adhesive and that could be a number of different things it could be oil it could be water based adhesives and we have all the different types mm-hmm. usually water based adhesives are preferable for uh decorating objects uh whereas oil based adhesives were developed primarily for architectural decoration like outdoors
3: uh I see
2: uh, okay. Because you needed a longer uh, open time,
3: mm-hmm.
2: water-based materials have a very short open time so that you need to, as soon as you apply the adhesive, you need to then work with the gold or the metal leaf immediately. And then, of course, once you lay it down, you, you need to maybe, if you want a, a very polished effect, you need to polish it. And the problem that that it's become uh, – today it's become kind of a trend where a lot of artists are exploring the use of, of metal leaf in their work, and it's beautiful, and mm-hmm. there's a number of artists who have been very successful in doing that. Brad Kunkel is a mm-hmm. good example. He's using uh, lots of silver leaf and, uh, and getting good results from that, and that's great. Uh, but a lot of artists, they think that they can get into gilding without very little any preparation or training and that's very difficult to do it.
0: Yeah, without. it's actually a very difficult it process very difficult. Yeah.
2: And, and, yeah and it and it is reasonably to understand why because it is a uh, it's a very precise process to do it well and uh, and you know we see a lot of artists thinking that they can get into it and unfortunately, it's perpetuated, You know, you walk into a Michaels now and you see a little uh, rack of, of, you know, composite metal and and some things and and people believe, oh, I can just get into this and it's very easy. And then they struggle with it. Mm -hmm. So it does make sense to find a good teacher, learn Mm -hmm. what they're doing and uh, and then explore. It doesn't mean you can't explore it without that. But but to really get the wide range of results, you do need a good teacher. That's for Mm -hmm. sure.
0: What's the good sealant for, for the silver leaf or gold leaf?
2: So, basically, in gold, <clears throat> you actually don't want to seal the gold, especially okay. if it's a highly polished surface, mainly because it will actually detract from the highly polished surface. Now, of course, if you're doing what we call matte gold, which is not polished,
3: mm-hmm.
2: it has a kind of a matte-looking effect. Uh, putting a a varnish, any varnish will do just keep in mind that for silver and some uh, other metals like aluminum and, uh, they will develop a patina even Mm -hmm. with varnish on top because, uh, a lot of people think that, and, and the, unfortunately the word seal (laughs) in the English language at least derives this concept that it's, that it is absolutely impermeable that it's non-destructive and so forth and that's the farthest thing it offers a little bit of protection but it doesn't seal anything it just it offers more protection from abrasion and a little protection from light not much uh, and very little protection from moisture a little bit not
0: wow. okay i didn't know that <laughs> yeah so,
2: It'll it'll obviously slow down the effect of, of moisture, which can cause corrosion, let's say, of metal. Uh, but it doesn't prevent it. But some people like that, by the way. They like the patina, the aging effect. And that's why they will use um, uh, colored bases underneath gold or other metals. Mm-hmm. That's traditional because they understand that the metal will wear off. Mm-hmm. And when it does, it has that nice kind of patina, natural patina. For silver, it's black or blue. For gold, it's red or yellow and so forth.
1: Please don't do that on
2: canvas. But canvas, <laughs> it's, it's, really, you know, it's really a shame. When we see it on canvas, it's like, really? Yeah,
1: <laughs> because you need to understand then it's uh, metal, even if it looks not even close as a metal, so it's very thin and so but overall it's once you glue and uh, canvas is doing this mm-hmm. day in day out it will break your gold and uh, it doesn't matter what uh, under gold you will put it still will be uh, broken and so then mm-hmm. it's a waste of unless you do want that you know, on your or the afe-
2: or, or the appearance of can- yeah. canvas, you yeah, know, because that's so what that's it's going to show. So that's different, of
1: course, but yeah. we we do have now last uh, five years probably people just uh, calling us about gilding. That's why originally we had only for iconography, and so and we mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. the most case it was uh, water gilding.
0: Well, what are the best panels for gilding? Uh, I'm assuming aluminum or maybe wood panels.
2: Wood is good, Um, and as as you may know, we we started a a second company called Artifacts that specializes in uh, aluminum composite uh, panels. Mm -hmm. Really, um, aluminum composite panels really provide perhaps the most stable support that artists can paint on today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now there may be something in the future. That we'll find that's even better, but today it provides a very stable support because it's not it's not susceptible to warping.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: it's not susceptible to changes in relative humidity or or susceptible to moisture. So it doesn't have a lot of the problems that either wood or canvas presents. Um, and so um, when
1: we started that company, uh, aluminum composite was uh, still quite expensive. Nowadays, it's uh, almost the same <clears throat> price. What we see, the wood. people would. You know. yeah. yeah, that's what
0: I noticed. Or even <coughs> canvas. I, I mean, what's the point okay. of buying a canvas uh, exactly. if if it costs about the same? But the weight is different. You know, it it weighs so much more.
2: In terms of wood, the, wood uh, will, actually will it it weighs uh, much less. Much more. Wood will actually weigh more, yeah. and and the wood the price of wood has gone up so incredibly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, and, and I'm not talking about like I'm, yeah, you can buy you know a very inexpensive uh, hardboard panel, uh, but you see that hardboard panel is so you know it's like a eighth of an inch thick and it's, mm-hmm. it's warping. And if you're going to do canvas, and canvas can be a good support in under some circumstances. But to do it right, like having the really strong heavyweight canvas, especially for a larger picture with really good supports and a good support auxiliary support structure behind the canvas and then adding uh, protective backings behind once you get through with that. You're probably going to spend the same amount of money.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, on and, Earth, and I think on Artifacts, uh, Anton even has uh, specific like range, like look how much that will weigh compared to something else. And so I think Artifacts has this even table or some uh, I don't remember. I know they they had the video on that uh, because. The weight definitely not an issue anymore. The price is not an issue anymore. It's uh, but the sizes, yes. So because I mean, we it's
2: still we still when you're doing large sizes, you know, to roll up a canvas is of mm-hmm. course much easier.
0: Yeah, shaping is
2: shipping a you know mm-hmm. a large panel. Obviously, that's that's correct, and and mm-hmm. and that's the one that's the one disadvantage in in these panels as opposed to uh, rolling up a canvas. But if you, if you don't do that, then, you know, everything becomes equal. And, and now you have here a support. And, n- you know, now we have, even for large sizes, we have supports where it's two thin sheets of aluminum and there's an aluminum honeycomb core. It's
1: and even lighter. That
2: is even light. That's so light. It's amazing. And it's mm-hmm. even much stronger. Yeah. Uh then the standard uh aluminum composite panel that has a solid plastic core. So it's okay. even lighter. If Interesting. You, size, yeah. And in go, fact we go don't
1: visit uh, artifacts.bis, is. Yeah. And so you will see all of uh, all of that um and, In he information. Has, and he has like 22 different surfaces, so you can really choose what you want.
2: Yeah, you can still paint yeah. on canvas.
1: So for acrylics, Acrylic. for dra- drawing, he even has now uh, the paper adhered
2: to that, uh, everything possible. we yeah, we developed a temper ground for it, yeah. and it's really, so there's, it's it's really, it's, it makes a lot of sense for artists to, and but, you know, some artists still, um, uh, still want to paint on wood. They like that, or they want to continue painting on camera. And of course, that's, that's a valid mm-hmm. choice. Always the choice should be based on aesthetics rather than simply, you know, mechanical mm.
0: Well, guys, I, I can talk to you forever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we need to quit. Yes, yeah, we do. Would, would, would you like to add anything else before we quit? <laughs>
2: I think the only th- the thing that we encourage artists to do is uh I always say to artists because not cuz I'm a little bit biased with science and art uh science is not a detractor from art and in fact many artists have always said that science and art are really intersecting and I believe that and there's a lot of good things can come out of it we and I think that natural pigments is is actually proof of that itself so
1: I just uh, want to thank artists, uh, thinking artists, because this is—it's true. It's a little bit more difficult to work with them because they—they they know what they want and it's very specific. But same time, uh, we do know that they care what, uh, what future generation will see. Because we now know that 20th century art definitely will be lost due to materials and uh, so and too. practices. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so uh, we we love our artists. We appreciate and so we we are willing to work with them and so that's why we have uh even artists we, we make special batches for them because they really know what they want and uh and if you don't know what you want call us we will we will explain whatever <laughs> you
0: you need <laughs> who 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 is the, uh, who was the most famous artist who called you
1: we hate to say that, but uh, but George always afraid, and it's friendship, of course. But John Curran is the probably the best uh, friend for George. Who really uh, John Curran is what we understand. Then this is the thinking artist.
2: He really mm, interesting.
0: Understood. I didn't know that about
1: yeah. him
2: john uh and, and and we've had many conversations but john really knows his materials huh. uh, he's okay. very controversial among yeah. people but uh but he is he's uh um, very knowledgeable about what he's doing it's it amazes me actually
1: wow that's good
2: from a from a every, whole different every perspective. time
1: in his uh, studio they, it it feels like these two people from different worlds are they talking same language, but from <laughs> different perspective because um, John is using almost all our colors and so he knows absolutely every each of them and he's teaching us on many occasions where he's saying then look what I did and we were like what. <laughs> We didn't even expect that. So, but I, I mean, I can tell you, we have the whole list of, and I I just afraid to miss every uh, somebody. So and there's yes. many.
2: There's actually many other but artists that ask, we But you ask like, we what's enjoy. the most
1: yeah. known? Probably mm-hmm. would, would be him. So.
2: But yeah, there's many other artists that we and we especially enjoy the interaction with these artists. And it's in why fact, we, it's we really to
1: studios. It's why it's important for us because that's how we we develop in our materials too. Because I every time saying that 50 percent of our uh, big, the our ideas. colors oh, yeah. and ideas and mediums tears of the artist because when we come to studio and they say and then listen i spent so many years and i i still can't find that material what will do this for me and george was like okay we will do it <laughs> so, and uh, very often it doesn't bring us any money because it's uh, uh because what works for one again you see mm-hmm. that's what they're mentioning what works for one completely will not work for somebody else it's why. It's all individual. It's why I always think all our artists, because all of them, combining, uh, making who we are.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and for you know sharing your expertise. Um, I'm very honored to have you, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank,
2: thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank the you. opportunity.
0: Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Uh- I know <laughs> bye. Bye. thanks so much for watching uh, all the links are in the show notes uh, take care bye bye.